Chapter eleven of the Complete Angler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Complete Angler by Isaac Walton. Chapter eleven. The fourth day continued. On the Tench. Piscator. The Tench, the physician of fishes is observed to love ponds better than rivers, and to love pits better than either. Yet Camden observes there is a river in Dorsetshire that abounds with tenches, but doubtless they retire to the most deep and quiet places in it. This fish hath very large fins, very small and smooth scales, a red circle about his eyes, which are big and of a gold colour, and from either angle of his mouth there hangs down a little barb, in every tencher's head there are two little stones which foreign physicians make great use of. But he is not commended for wholesome meat, though there be very much use made of them for outward applications. Rondelicius says that at his being at Rome, he saw a great cure done by applying a tench to the feet of a very sick man. This, he says, was done after an unusual manner by certain Jews. And it is observed that many of those people have many secrets yet unknown to Christians secrets that have never yet been written but have been since the days of their solomon who knew the nature of all things even from the cedar to the shrub delivered by tradition from the father to the son and so from generation to generation without writing or unless it were casually without the least communicating them to any other nation or tribe for to do that they account a profanation and yet it is thought that they or some spirit worse than they first told us that lice swallowed alive were a certain cure for the yellow jaundice this and many other medicines were discovered by them or by revelation for doubtless we attained them not by study well this fish besides his eating is very useful both dead and alive for the good of mankind but i will meddle no more with that my honest humble art teaches no such boldness there are too many foolish meddlers in physic and divinity that think themselves fit to meddle with hidden secrets and so bring destruction to their followers. But I'll not meddle with them, any further than to wish them wiser, and shall tell you next, for I hope I may be so bold, that the tench is the physician of fishes, for the pike especially, and that the pike, being either sick or hurt, is cured by the touch of the tench. And it is observed that the tyrant pike will not be a wolf to his physician, but forbears to devour him, though he be never so hungry. This fish, that carries a natural balsam in him, to cure both himself and others, loves yet to feed in very foul water, and amongst weeds, and yet I am sure he eats pleasantly, and doubtless you will think so too if you taste him, and I shall therefore proceed to give you some few, and but a few, directions how to catch this tench, of which I have given you these observations. He will bite at a paste made of brown bread and honey, or at a marsh-worm, or a lob-worm. He inclines very much to any paste with which tar is mixed and he will bite also at a smaller worm with his head nipped off, and a cod-worm put on the hook before that worm. And I doubt not but that he will also in the three hot months, for in the nine colder he stirs not much, bite at a flag-worm or at a green gentle, but can positively say no more of the tench, he being a fish I have not often angled for. But I wish my honest scholar may, and be ever fortunate when he fishes. End of chapter 11 Chapter Twelve, The Fourth Day Continued, On the Perch, Piscator and Venator. Piscator, the perch is a very good and very bold biting fish. 
He is one of the fishes of prey that, like the pike and trout, carries his teeth in his mouth, which is very large, and he dare venture to kill and devour several other kinds of fish. He has a hooked or hog back, which is armed with sharp and stiff bristles, and all his skin armed or covered over with thick, dry, hard scales, and hath, which few other fish have, two fins on his back. He is so bold that he will invade one of his own kind, which the pike will not do so willingly, and you may therefore easily believe him to be a bold biter. The perch is of great esteem in Italy, said Aldrovandus, and especially the least are there esteemed a dainty dish, and Gesner prefers the perch and pike above the trout, or any fresh-water fish. He says the Germans have this proverb, more wholesome than a perch of rhine, and he says the river perch is so wholesome that physicians allow him to be eaten by wounded men, or by men in fevers, or by women in childbed. He spawns but once a year, and is by physicians held very nutritive, yet by many to be hard of digestion. They abound more in the river Po and in England, says Vondelicius, than other parts, and have in their brain a stone which is in foreign parts sold by apothecaries, being there noted to be very medicinable against the stone in the rains. These be a part of the commendations which some philosophical brains have bestowed upon the fresh-water perch. Yet they commend the sea-perch, which is known by having but one fin on his back, of which they say we English see but a few, to be a much better fish. The perch grows slowly, yet will grow, as I have been credibly informed, to be almost two feet long. For an honest informer told me, such a one was not long since taken by Sir Abraham Williams, a gentleman of worth, and a brother of the angle, that yet lives, and I wish he may. This was a deep-bodied fish, and doubtless durst have devoured a pike of half his own length. For I have told you he is a bold fish, such a one as but for extreme hunger the pike will not devour. For to affright the pike and save himself, the perch will set up his fins, much like as a turkey-cock will sometimes set up his tail. But my scholar, the perch is not only valiant to defend himself, but he is, as I said, a bold biting fish. Yet he will not bite at all seasons of the year. He is very abstemious in winter, yet will bite then in the midst of the day, if it be warm, and note that all fish bite best about the midst of warm day in winter, and he hath been observed by some not usually to bite till the mulberry tree buds, that is to say, till extreme frosts be past the spring. For when the mulberry tree blossoms, many gardeners observe their forward fruit to be past the danger of frosts and some have made the like observation of the perch's biting. But bite the perch will, and that very boldly. As one has wittily observed, if there be twenty or forty in a hole, they may be at one standing all catched one after another, they being, as he says, like the wicked of the world, not afraid, though their fellows and companions perish in their sight. And you may observe that they are not like the solitary pike, but love to accompany one another and march together in troops. And the baits for this bold fish are not many. I mean, he will bite as well at some, or at any of these three, as at any or all others whatsoever. A worm, a minnow, or a little frog, of which you may find many in hay-time. And of worms, the dunghill worm called a brandling I take to be best, being well scoured in moss or fennel. Or he will bite at a worm that lies under cow-dung, with a bluish head. And if you row for a perch with a minnow, then it is best to be alive, you sticking your hook through his back fin, or a minnow with the hook in his upper lip, and letting him swim up and down about mid-water or a little lower, and you still keeping him to about that depth by a cork, 
which ought not to be a very little one, and the like way you are to fish for the perch with a small frog, your hook being fastened through the skin of his leg, towards the upper part of it. And lastly, I will give you but this advice, that you give the perch time enough when he bites, for there was scarce ever any angler that has given him too much. And now I think best to rest myself, for I have almost spent my spirits with talking so long. Venator. Nay, good master, one fish more, for you see it rains still, and you know our angles are like money put to usury. They may thrive, though we sit still, and do nothing but talk and enjoy one another. Come, come, the other fish, good master. Piscator. But, scholar, have you nothing to mix with this discourse, which now grows both tedious and tiresome? Shall I have nothing from you that seem to have both a good memory and a cheerful spirit? Venator. Yes, master. I will speak you a copy of verses that were made by Dr. Dunn, and made to shew the world that he could make soft and smooth verses, when he thought smoothness worth his labour, and I love them the better because they allude to rivers and fish and fishing. They be these. Come live with me and be my love, and we will some new pleasures prove, of golden sands and crystal brooks, with silken lines and silver hooks. There will the river whispering run, warmed by thy eyes more than the sun, and there the enamelled fish will stay, begging themselves they may betray. When thou wilt swim in that live bath, each fish which every channel hath, most amorously to thee will swim, gladder to catch thee than thou him. If thou, to be so seen, beest loath, by sun or moon, thou darkness both, and if mine eyes have leave to see, I need not their light having thee. Let others freeze with angling reeds, and cut their legs with shells and weeds, or treacherously poor fish beset, with strangling snares or windowy net. Let coarse bold hands from slimy nest the bedded fish in banks outrest. Let curious traitors sleeve silk flies, to which poor wandering fishers' eyes. For thee thou needst no such deceit, for thou thyself art thine own bait. That fish that is not catched thereby is wiser far, alas, than I. Piscator. Well remembered, honest scholar. I thank you for these choice verses, which I have heard formerly, but had quite forgot, till they were recovered by your happy memory. Well, being I have now rested myself a little, I will make you some requital by telling you some observations of the eel, for it rains still, and because, as you say, our angles are as money put to use, that thrives when we play, therefore we'll sit still and enjoy ourselves a little longer under this honeysuckle hedge. End of chapter 12 Chapter 13. The Fourth Day Continued. Of the Eel and Other Fish That Want Scales. Piscator. It is agreed by most men that the eel is a most dainty fish. The Romans have esteemed her the Helena of their feasts, and some the queen of palate pleasure. But most men differ about their breeding. Some say they breed by generation, as other fish do, and others that they breed, as some worms do, of mud, as rats and mice, and many other living creatures are bred in Egypt, by the sun's heat, when it shines upon the overflowing of the river Nilus, or out of the putrefaction of the earth, and diverse other ways. Those that deny them to breed by generation, as other fish do, ask, if any man ever saw an eel to have a spawn or melt, and they are answered, that they be as certain of their breeding, as if they had seen spawn, for they say that they are certain that eels have all parts fit for generation, like other fish, but so small as not to be easily discerned, by reason of their fatness, but that discerned they may be, 
and that the he and the she eel may be distinguished by their fins and rondelicius says he has seen eels cling together like dew-worms and others say that eels growing old breed other eels out of the corruption of their own age which sir francis bacon says exceeds not ten years and others say that as pearls are made of glutinous dewdrops which are condensed by the sun's heat in those countries so eels are bred of a particular dew falling in the months of may or june on the banks of some particular ponds or rivers apted by nature for that end which in a few days are by the sun's heat turned into eels and some of the ancients have called the eels that are thus bred the offspring of jove i have seen in the beginning of july in a river not far from canterbury some parts of it covered over with young eels about the thickness of a straw and these eels did lie on the top of that water as thick as moats are said to be in the sun and i have heard the like of other rivers as namely in seven where they are called yelvers and in a pond or mere near unto staffordshire where about a set time in summer such small eels abound so much that many of the poorer sort of people that inhabit near to it take such eels out of this mere with sieves or sheets and make a kind of eel cake of them and eat it like as bread and gesner quotes venerable bede to say that in england there is an island called ely by reason of the innumerable number of eels that breed in it but that eels may be bred as some worms and some kind of bees and wasps are either of dew or out of the corruption of the earth seems to be made probable by the barnacles and young goslings bred by the sun's heat and the rotten planks of an old ship and hatch of trees both which are related for truths by dubatus and lobel and also by our learned camden and laboris gerhard in his herbal it is said by rondelicius that those eels that are bred in rivers that relate to or be nearer to the sea never return to the fresh waters as the salmon does always desire to do when they have once tasted the salt water and i do the more easily believe this because i am certain that powdered beef is a most excellent bait to catch an eel and though sir francis bacon will allow the eel's life to be but ten years yet he in his history of life and death mentions a lamprey belonging to the roman emperor to be made tame and so kept for almost threescore years and that such useful and pleasant observations were made of this lamprey that crassus the orator who kept her lamented her death and we read in dr hakewill that hortensius was seen to weep at the death of a lamprey that he had kept long and loved exceedingly it is granted by all or most men that eels for about six months that is to say the six cold months of the year stir not up or down neither in the rivers nor in the pools in which they usually are but get into the soft earth or mud and there many of them together bed themselves and live without feeding upon anything as i have told you some swallows have been observed to do in hollow trees for those six cold months and this the eel and swallow do as not being able to endure winter weather for gesner quotes albertus to say that in the year eleven twenty five that year's winter being more cold than usually eels did by nature's instinct get out of the water into a stack of hay in a meadow upon dry ground and there bedded themselves but yet at last a frost killed them and our camden relates that in lancashire fishes were digged out of the earth with spades where no water was near to the place i shall say little more of the eel but that as it is observed he is impatient of cold so it hath been observed that in warm weather an eel has been known to live five days out of the water and lastly let me tell you that some curious searchers into the natures of fish observe that there be several sorts 
or kinds of eels, as the silver eel, the green or greenish eel, with which the river of Thames abounds, and those are called grigs, and a blackish eel, whose head is more flat and bigger than ordinary eels, and also an eel whose fins are reddish, and but seldom taken in this nation, and yet taken sometimes. These several kinds of eels are, say some, diversely bred, as namely out of the corruption of the earth, and some by dew and other ways, as I have said to you. And yet it is affirmed by some for a certain, that the silver eel is bred by generation, but not by spawning as other fish do, but that her brood come alive from her, being then little live eels, no bigger nor longer than a pin. And I have had too many testimonies of this to doubt the truth of it myself. And if I thought it needful, I might prove it. But I think it is needless. And this eel, of which I have said so much to you, may be caught with diverse kinds of baits, as namely with powdered beef, with a lob or garden worm, with a minnow, or gut of a hen, chicken, or the guts of any fish, or with almost anything, for he is a greedy fish. But the eel may be caught especially with a little, a very little lamprey, which some call a pride, and may in the hot months be found many of them in the river Thames, and in many mud-heaps in other rivers, yea, almost as usually as one finds worms in a dunghill. Next note, that the eel seldom stirs in the day, but then hides himself, and therefore he is usually caught by night, with one of these baits of which I have spoken, and may be then caught by laying hooks, which you are to fasten to the bank or twigs of a tree, or by throwing a string across the stream, with many hooks at it, and those baited with the aforesaid baits, and a clod or plummet or stone, thrown into the river with this line, that so you may in the morning find it near to some fixed place, and then take it up with a drag-hook or otherwise. But these things are indeed too common to be spoken of, and an hour's fishing with any angler will teach you better, both for these and many other common things, in the practical part of angling, than a week's discourse. I shall therefore conclude this direction for taking the eel, by telling you that in a warm day in summer, I have taken many a good eel by sniggling, and have been much pleased with that sport. And because you, that are but a young angler, know not what sniggling is, I will now teach it to you. You remember I told you that eels do not usually stir in the daytime, for then they hide themselves under some covert, or under boards or planks about floodgates, or weirs or mills, or in holes on the river-banks, so that you, observing your time in a warm day, when the water is lowest, may take a strong small hook tied to a strong line, or to a string about a yard long, and then into one of these holes, or between any boards about a mill, or under any great stone or plank, or any place where you think an eel may hide or shelter herself, you may, with the help of a short stick, put in your bait, but leisurely, and as far as you may conveniently. And it is scarce to be doubted, but if there be an eel within the sight of it, the eel will bite instantly, and as certainly gorge it, and you need not doubt to have him, if you pull him not out of the hole too quickly, but pull him out by degrees, for he, lying folded double in his hole, will, with the help of his tail, break all, unless you give him time to be wearied with pulling, and so get him out by degrees, not pulling too hard. And to commute for your patient hearing this long direction, I shall next tell you how to make this eel a most excellent dish of meat. First wash him in water and salt, then pull off his skin below his vent or navel, and not much further. Having done that, take out his guts as clean as you can, but wash him not, then give him three or four scotches with a knife, and then put into his belly and those scotches 
sweet herbs, and anchovy, and a little nutmeg grated or cut very small, and your herbs and anchovies must also be cut very small, and mixed with good butter and salt. Having done this, then pull his skin over him, all but his head, which you are to cut off, to the end you may tie his skin about that part where his head grew, and it must be so tied as to keep all his moisture within his skin, and having done this, tie him with tape or pack-thread to a spit, and roast him leisurely, and baste him with water and salt till his skin breaks, and then with butter, and having roasted him enough, let what was put into his belly and what he drips be his sauce. S. F. When I go to dress an eel thus, I wish he were as long and as big as that which was caught in Peterborough River, in the year 1667, which was a yard and three-quarters long. If you will not believe me, then go and see at one of the coffee-houses in King Street, in Westminster. But now let me tell you, that though the eel thus dressed be not only excellent good, but more harmless than any other way, yet it is certain that physicians account the eel dangerous meat. I will advise you, therefore, as Solomon says of honey, Hast thou found it, eat no more than is sufficient, lest thou surf it, for it is not good to eat much honey. And let me add this, that the uncharitable Italian bids us give eels and no wine to our enemies. And I will beg a little more of your attention to tell you, that Aldrovandus and diverse physicians commend the eel very much for medicine, though not for meat. But let me tell you one observation, that the eel is never out of season, as trouts and most other fish are at set times. At least most eels are not. I might here speak of many other fish, whose shape and nature are much like the eel, and frequent both the sea and fresh rivers, as namely the lamprel, the lamprey, and the lampern, as also of the mighty conger, taken often in seven, about Gloucester, and might also tell in what high esteem many of them are, for the curiosity of their taste. But these are not so proper to be talked of by me, because they make us anglers no sport. Therefore I will let them alone, as the Jews do, to whom they are forbidden by their law. And, scholar, there is also a flounder, a sea-fish which will wander very far into fresh rivers, and there lose himself and dwell, and thrive to a hand's breadth and almost twice so long. A fish without scales, and most excellent meat, and a fish that affords much sport to the angler, with any small worm, but especially a little bluish worm, gotten out of marsh-ground or meadows, which should be well scoured. But this, though it be most excellent meat, yet it wants scales, and is, as I told you, therefore an abomination to the Jews. But, scholar, there is a fish that they in Lancashire boast very much of, called a char, taken there, and I think there only, in a mere called Winander mere, a mere, says Camden, that is the largest in this nation, being ten miles in length, and some say as smooth in the bottom, as if it were paved with polished marble. This fish never exceeds fifteen or sixteen inches in length, and it is spotted like a trout, and has scarce a bone but on the back. But this, though I do not know whether it make the angler sport, yet I would have you take notice of it, because it is a rarity, and of so high esteem with persons of great note. Nor would I have you ignorant of a rare fish called a greeniad, of which I shall tell you what Camden and others speak. The river Dee, which runs by Chester, springs in Merinethshire, and as it runs toward Chester, it runs through Pemble Mere, which is a large water, and it is observed that though the river Dee abounds with salmon, and Pemble Mere with a guinead, yet there is never any salmon caught in the mere, nor guinead in the river. And now my next observation shall be of the barbel. End of chapter 13